Morning. My name is Trisha, and today's second Bible reading is taken from Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 21. Can be found on page 1219 on your, at your pew Bibles in front of you, or you can follow along on the screen in front of you. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of all of them, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If, while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. This is God's word. Well, friends, hopefully you've got your own Bibles. You brought one along to to look at, to read, to follow along, to mark, to annotate. Um, it's a nice practice to use the physical Bible. Um, but uh, today's passage is quite dense, so you'll find the outline on the inside of the newsletter helpful. Um, and so we really need to be concentrated in thinking. Paul speaks of many important things, and they are the words of life to us. So let's uh, pray that God will help us understand them and understand it rightly. Let's, let's join in prayer once again. Heavenly Father, as we come to this part of Scripture, we pray that the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth may be pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the date was the 31st of October 1917 in a small provincial town. It was an Augustinian monk who served as a professor of a university. And what he did was he nailed a document to the door of a church in Wittenberg. It was the spark that started the Reformation. It transformed not just Germany, but all of Europe, and in fact the entire world since then. It was, of course, Martin Luther, a German monk. He took it upon himself to protest and to expose the, the wrong teachings of the Roman Catholic Church at that time, the powerful Roman Catholic Church. And so in what he posted on the door of the church was what was called the 95 Theses. 
it was a, a number of statements, a series of statements, showing how the church's selling of indulgences, it just does not fit in line with Scripture. Indulgences were what the church would write to show that your sins are forgiven. And what you have to do is you have to pay your money, you pay your coins. And that's how you might help your, your loved ones escape purgatory. But of course, what did happen was that a lot of that money that was accumulated was used to build St. Peter's Basilica. And so Martin Luther, he, he was not very happy. He was not very pleased because he was trying to see, is that practice aligned with Scripture? And so he saw that it can't be. In fact, it's a distortion of the gospel. It's what the Apostle Paul calls in Galatians another gospel. But what was it that gave Martin Luther that, that boldness, that conviction to take on the, the powerful Roman Catholic Church? I mean, they were the powerhouse. He was this, just this small monk from this small provincial town. Well, you see, for Martin Luther, it was coming back to the Word of God. It was coming back to the Word of God, and in, in fact, it was coming to Galatians, this book that gave him clarity on how a sinner can have a relationship with the Holy God. Martin Luther once said about this book, the book of Galatians, he said, the epistle to the Galatians is my epistle to which I have wedded myself. It is my Catherine von Bora. Now, Catherine von Bora was his wife. Now, I'm not sure if that was a compliment to his wife or to the book of Galatians to call your wife and to mix that around. But you see, this letter was so precious to Martin Luther because in this letter, the Apostle Paul puts two truths so plainly. Two truths. The first one, we are sinners. We are broken, filthy, wretched sinners, all humanity. But yet God is holy and perfect and cannot be with sin. So if they are the two truths, how can a holy God have a relationship with sinful human beings? That's the big predicament of all of humanity. Well, the only way was if God did something about it, and God has done something about it in Jesus Christ. And in this letter, the Apostle Paul speaks of that thing that God did as justification. And we'll spend a bit of time thinking about justification today. And that was the clarity that Martin Luther needed. Indulgences will not make us right with God. Pay however much money you want to pay. It will not make you right with God. Rules and sacraments and laws and baptisms will not make you right with God. Obedience to all those things will not make you, allow you to get into heaven. You see, the book of Galatians puts it so simply, and that's why it was so precious to Martin Luther. To put simply, faith in Jesus alone is what gets us to heaven. It is solely what Jesus has done, 100% Jesus and 0% us. Now, for some of us here this morning, this may be the first time you're saying, my entry into the kingdom of God, my salvation, my forgiveness does not depend on me one bit. Well, that's the gospel. 0% us, 100% Jesus. But for many of us who already know the gospel, we need to be reminded of this because when we assume the gospel, when it becomes so familiar to us, 
it's a short step to forgetting it. And it's why Martin Luther said this. He, he said this quote, which I love. He said, The truth of the gospel is the principal article that is justification by faith. It is the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Most necessary it is therefore that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into our heads continually. We need to beat it into our heads, be reminded of justification by faith alone in Christ alone, every day, every week, and that's what we'll be doing throughout this whole series. In fact, we see why Martin Luther said that because of what happened in this passage. Do you notice what happened in this passage? This passage shows us why it's so important to beat the gospel into our heads. Because even an apostle, an apostle of Jesus Christ, Peter, would undermine the gospel by how he lived. And what we see here was no small matter that happened. That's why there was this confrontation, apostle against apostle. Apostle Paul against Apostle Peter. And if you want to talk about ranking, in fact, Peter outranked Paul by miles. Paul would say of himself, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not even worthy to be an apostle because I persecuted the church. But yet what happened? What did Paul tell us? Well, just as Martin Luther protested against the church, here we see an apostle protesting against another apostle. And so what was the situation? We see Peter, in a sense, he was the first amongst equals in the band of apostles. He was like the leader of the pack, one of the pillars of the early church. By this time, Peter was already commissioned by Jesus, go and make disciples. And by this time, he was informed that those disciples are both Jew and Gentile. That's what we read in our first reading in Acts 11. In Acts 11, Peter was given a vision, a cloth coming down from heaven with all sorts of animals. And Peter being informed, you can go, kill and eat. There's nothing unclean now. Eat pork if you like, no problems. Eat lobster and abalone, no problems. You can have it all. There's nothing unclean. Do not call it unclean. But what was important about that vision was to also inform Peter that the gospel was also for the Gentiles. Not just that the food laws are gone, but that the gospel was for the Gentiles as well. There is to be no war of division between Jew and Gentile. Now for us today, we might think, well, what's the big deal about Jews accepting Gentiles? You know, what's the big deal about that? But back then, it was a big deal. Because according to their ceremonial laws, Gentiles were considered unclean. And so if you were to eat or intermingle or even enter the house of a Gentile, you will be considered unclean. And if you are ceremonially unclean, you cannot go into the presence of God. You cannot go to worship God. It's why in the Gospels, in John chapter 18, when the Jews led Jesus to Pilate's palace to be tried by Pilate, the Jews, those Jewish leaders, they would not enter the palace because he was a Gentile. They did not want to be ceremonially unclean. But that vision was revealed to Peter so that he would see no more division between Jew and Gentile. The covenant community of God includes Gentiles as well. 
and Peter accepted that. And that's why last week you saw that he gave Paul the right hand of fellowship. He saw that, Paul, you're an apostle to the Gentiles. Go and bring them to saving faith too. And so Peter knew, Jew and Gentile are to be brought as one under God. No barriers, no division, no war between them at all. They are to come together in fellowship until we read what happened here. Look at verse 12 of me. Before certain men came from James, he, that is Peter, used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. What happened there with Peter? His behavior changed. And it changed not because of his theological convictions. Something changed in his beliefs. It was out of fear. It was out of fear of this group that came that was pointing out you shouldn't be eating with the Gentiles. They were putting up wars again between Jew and Gentile. I mean, just imagine what Peter did as an apostle. They were together eating. It's all fine. But then eventually when this group came and pointed that out, Peter started putting up wars and he excluded himself from the Gentiles. I mean, just imagine if that were to happen in our church where we would divide people according to race. You know, a Presbyterian church will have the Scottish corner. The Scottish corner, you have your kilts and bagpipes and haggis. You have your English corner where you have your fish and chips and you speak proper. You have your Asian corner, your Chakwai deal. You have these wars. It's not right. But that was, in effect, what Peter was doing. He was excluding himself from fellowship with the Gentiles because he was saying, well, that's probably unclean. And he did it out of fear. But he should have known better. And what did, call, uh, what did Paul call him? Paul called him a hypocrite. Apostle calling the apostle a hypocrite. Now, that was the language he used. Now, the language of hypocrite comes from the Greek plays where actors were put on masks. And so to be a hypocrite means you're just a fake. You're just putting on a show. You're inconsistent. And so Paul called Peter out. Now, when you read that, it was quite confrontational. You have to ask, well, was Paul a bit out of line here? Peter outranked him, and he did it publicly. In front of everyone. You see, for Paul, this was not a matter of, hey, Peter, can I have a private word with you? I know it was just innocent mistake. You, you no, for Paul, this was not a matter of opinion. This was not a matter of personal preference. Paul saw what Peter did here, just like what Martin Luther later saw. His hypocrisy. It was not just a slip of behavior or a lapse of mind. He was undermining the very gospel that saved him. He was out of line with what Jesus taught. And that's what Paul describes here. He describes it, verse 14. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Now the word's not acting in line. It's literally ortho-walking in the Greek. Ortho-walking. The prefix ortho, it's, it's where we get the word orthodontist from, you know, to make your teeth straight. So they were not straight walking. They were not walking in line straight with the gospel. They were going all over the place. They were not consistent. And so Paul points it out. 
You live like a Gentile, Peter. You're enjoying pork now, roast pork. You're enjoying shellfish. You're enjoying all those things, but yet you're expecting Gentiles to live like Jews. You're inconsistent. You're not straight walking. In fact, you're undermining the gospel that has saved you. You see, what Peter was doing, he was an apostle. He was the leader of the apostles. What Peter was doing was, in a sense, by his hypocrisy, he was making a statement. The gospel is great. Jesus is great, but it is the gospel plus. It is Jesus plus, plus these rules and regulations. And that was to pervert the gospel. And now I think, again, it is important for us to see, you know, that might be a different time in a different place. But it is something that is very easy for Christians to slip into, even today. A gospel plus something. Or a Jesus plus something. I mean, it happened to an apostle. I mean, for example, I wonder if any one of us would think this way. I trust in Jesus, but I don't feel saved. Anyone think that way? Isn't that a gospel plus? Isn't that a gospel plus? What does your salvation have anything to do with how you feel? Isn't what Jesus did enough? Now, don't get me wrong. It's not that we are not meant to feel peace and joy and the affections of Christ, of course. But my feelings do not determine my standing before God. Or I wonder if any one of us might think this way. I trust in Jesus, but I'm just not sure I've done enough to get to heaven. Isn't that also a gospel plus? I mean, what does our salvation have to do with what we do at all? Now, of course, don't get me wrong again. It doesn't mean that we're not meant to live a life of, of purity, of godliness, of humility, of delight to God, of course. But my efforts, my deeds, my decency, my morality will not earn me forgiveness. It cannot. Well, I wonder if any one of us think in this way. I trust in Jesus but I don't have any spiritual gifts, so I'm not sure if I'm saved. I can't speak in tongues, for example. Any of us think that way? But isn't that also a gospel plus something? Isn't Jesus enough? You see how easy it is for us in, to slip into a gospel plus, which is another gospel, and Paul says it is not a gospel at all. And that's why Paul, like what Luther said, he's trying to beat the gospel into our heads. Don't mess up with this. Don't muck around with it. It is faith alone, in Christ alone, that justifies the sinner. The important word there is alone. Faith alone. Trust alone. Dependence alone. Not dependence plus, I need to be good. No, it is faith alone. And it is in Christ alone. No one else, not him and something else, not him and the church, not him and the tradition, not him and anything. Him alone. And those alone slogans became the Reformation slogans. Faith alone, Christ alone. The word of God alone, grace alone. 
But there's another word that's very important that Paul speaks of that we need to understand, and it's, it is the word justification. Now, what does that mean? It's a big word. sounds very you know, theological, but what does it mean? Well, to be justified is a legal term. It's taken from the court of law. It just means to be declared innocent. So if you're justified, you're declared innocent. You're declared righteous. Now, the verb to justify and the noun righteous comes from the same Greek word. So, so it's in the same group of words. And it's the opposite to the word condemnation, which is to declare guilty. And so here's the conundrum. How can sinners who are guilty then be declared innocent? How do you do that? It seems like an impossibility. How can God look at us? He sees right into our hearts. He sees all our filth. Nothing escapes him. He sees what we've thought, the evilness of our hearts, the darkness of our hearts. And he's, but I'm going to declare you innocent. How can God do that? If we're guilty, we're guilty. How can God declare an innocent person, a guilty person, innocent? Well, Paul's whole point was that we cannot be declared innocent by anything we do. We cannot. It's a bit like, imagine this. Imagine standing before a judge, and the judge passes his verdict upon you. He says, you are guilty as charged. There's no escape. It's obvious. It's clear. It's demonstrated. You are guilty as charged. But then you go to the judge and say, hey, judge, why don't we you know, just wiggle a bit? Why don't you just turn the verdict from guilty to innocent? Why don't you just do that? What's the judge going to say? Of course not. How can I do that? You're guilty. And then we go to the judge and say, well, why don't I you know, do a, a bit of community service? Give me a fine. I'll pay it. Let me do some good works for the community and then change my verdict from guilty to innocent. What is the judge going to say then? You think you can do that? If you're guilty, you're guilty. You cannot be, that cannot be wiped out. You cannot become guilty from innocent just by paying a fine. You're still guilty. However, what God has done in the gospel was that he was able to change the verdict. In the gospel, God's own son, Jesus Christ, the one who lived perfectly to all the laws of God. No one came close. He's the only one. He's the only one who did not need to take a stand before God. But he took the stand in our place. And our guilty verdict was placed upon him. And his innocent verdict was given to us. God was able to do that in the gospel. Now, we might be thinking, well, how can any judge do that? That doesn't sound very fair. Well, this is where we need to understand the inner workings of God. You see, though God the Father judged God the Son, there is still only one God. Jesus was not a third party. It works only because of the Trinity. He takes our place, and we take his place by faith. And that's why Paul was at pains here to make this clear, just like in the kids' talk. You have to repeat it three times just to get it into our heads. Look at verse 16. Verse 16. We know 
that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the first time. Have a look, 16 still. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, or literally, not merely in Jesus, but into Jesus. That is, we're running into him, finding refuge in him. And so, again, so we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. The second time. And finally, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Third time. He's trying to get it into our heads. Beat the gospel into our heads, just like what Luther said. You see, what God has done in the gospel was glorious. And we have to see it as glorious. God did not merely just forgive our sins, but he justified us so that we can come near. He did not just forgive our sins and say, you can go away, but he justified us so that we can have a relationship with him. It was, it was Sir Marcus Lone. He's, he was the former principal of the Bible college I went to, and Moore College, and former Archbishop of Sydney and Primate of Australia many years ago. He said these wonderful, profound things about forgiveness and justification that just bring such clarity. He said, The voice that spells forgiveness will say, You may go. You have been let off the penalty which your sin deserves. And now he says something about justification. But the verdict which means acceptance. Justification will say, You may come. You are welcome to all my love and my presence. So do you see what God has done in salvation? Not merely forgive us. To forgive say, says, you can go now. I won't hold it against you. But justification says, you now can come and enjoy the fullness of my love. That's justification. Beat it into our heads. And unless we do, we may end up making the mistake that Peter made. You see, Paul, what he does now is he follows through with the logic of what Peter did. And if you follow through with what Peter did, where would you end up? You'll end up with two terrible, blasphemous things you say about Jesus. The first is that you'll say, Jesus, he's a servant of sin. And second, you'll say that Jesus wasted his time by dying. You'll say those two things. So let's have a look. Let's follow this logic. The first one, verse 17. Now, it is a little bit dense, so, so try to follow along. Verse 17. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, what does that mean? Exactly what Peter did. He found justification in believing in Jesus Christ. And in doing so, he enjoyed the freedom of the gospel. No more barriers between Jew and Gentile. He enjoyed the freedom of being like a Gentile, eating pork, for example. Go for your life. So that was Peter's experience. And then what happened? The second part of verse 17. It becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners. What does that mean? Well, as Peter was enjoying fellowship with the Gentiles, the freedom of the gospel, eating anything he wanted having fellowship with them, not being seen as unclean. But because of this group of people who came and looked at their freedom and said, you are in fact sinning, Peter. 
by eating with the Gentiles. You are not living rightly, Peter. That is sin. Well, what has happened? Well, what is being asserted was that Jesus encouraged him to sin by giving him or encouraging him to enjoy that freedom in the first place. It's as though Jesus trapped him into the freedom of the gospel, which they now call sin. And so that's why Paul follows on with that logic. Does that mean that Jesus promotes sin, or more literally, it is a servant to sin? He caused you to sin by telling you to enjoy that freedom. He trapped you into sinning. But the answer is, absolutely not. But, but to put it simply, you mess up with the gospel, you mess up with Jesus Christ. You mess up with Jesus Christ, you pervert the gospel. It's why there's no going back to the law to be right with God. You can't go and obey the Ten Commandments and think that that will make you okay with God. You cannot go back to the laws of the Old Testament, try to be decent and moral and think that you'll have God's favour. Because if I go back to the law, what will happen? If I try to live perfectly according to the law, what will happen? I'll discover that I have broken the law over and over again. The law exposes my failings. And that's what Paul goes on to say, verses 18 and 19. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. You see, it's through the law that I discover I'm condemned. I cannot keep it. I cannot make it on my own, so I've died to it. I've died to that old way. And I'm now seeking justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And that's where I find life. But now the second blasphemous thing you say about Jesus, if we follow along with Peter's example, well, the second thing would be to say that Jesus died for nothing. You see, if I think, if any one of us think, my salvation depends on me 50%, 10%, 1%, then that is to make a mockery of the death of Jesus. You see, if it was at all possible to live by obedience to the Old Testament laws or to follow the four noble truths of Buddhism, or to submit to the five pillars of Islam and to find justification with God, if that was at all possible, do you think God would be so cruel, so silly, as to send his one and only beloved son, for him to condescend from the glory of heaven to the pits of earth, to watch people curse him, abuse him, humiliate him, spit on him, flog him, and even crucify him. I mean, would God have gone through all of that if there was another way? You see, I cannot think what could be more offensive to God than to say, you didn't have to send Jesus. Jesus, you didn't have to bleed. You didn't have to weep. You, you didn't have to die. I could have saved myself. There's nothing more offensive to God. In fact, that is the way of all the religions of the world, except Christianity. Because you just look at all the religions of the world, it is all about what I do to climb up to God. 
how I climb up the mountain, how I get to God by what I do, by my efforts, by my good works, by my deeds, thinking that my efforts will be enough. But God says, if that were possible, if you could climb up to me, I would not have sent my son. It's why Paul says finally in verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. You see, if there is an I in the gospel, I did, I felt, I served, any I at all, it denies the nature of God. It refuses the grace of God. It makes a mockery of the cross. It dims the glory of Christ. And Christ died for nothing. You see, we cannot get the gospel wrong because to get that wrong is to get Jesus wrong. And that's why we beat the gospel into our heads continually. And so let me ask you, do you know the gospel? Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know that your standing before God, your entry into heaven, your forgiveness of sins, your justification, your declared innocent, has nothing to do with you at all, but only Christ? We have to beat that into our heads. Why? Because it is possible, even in a Presbyterian church, to walk out of line, out of step with the truth, and not be straight walking. Now, I know the situation for us today is very different to the Jew-Gentile division, where we're not governed by food laws and circumcision, which I'm sure we're all very glad for. But are there rules... Or are there traditions or are there rituals that we think are necessary for salvation, even subconsciously? Take baptism. Some people think if I'm baptized, I'm saved. Well, it depends what they mean. Must I be baptized in a particular way? Sprinkling or full immersion or at all for salvation? What's the answer? No. No. You don't have to. However, is baptism a good thing out of obedience? Yes. But there's a clarity we need to have. There's a difference. I don't need it for salvation. I do it out of obedience. There's a difference. Or take church attendance. I just imagine many people going up to God one day and saying, I should be led into heaven because I went to church my whole life. Must I go to church for salvation? What's the answer? No. Even if we've gone to church every single week of our whole life, it does not earn us any brownie points with God. Not for our salvation, but should I faithfully be attending church out of obedience to Christ and love for his people? Absolutely yes. But you see the difference. Is it for salvation? No, it cannot be. But do I do it out of love and obedience? Yes, absolutely. You see, our beliefs 
Are they straight? Are they in line with the truth of the gospel? Because you you see, it will be obvious. It will be obvious whether your life is in line or not. If we are justified by faith alone or not. Because if we are, and we, we have to be able to see this in each other, if we're truly justified by God in Christ, then our lives will be so transformed, so radically different. And that's why Paul speaks here of the life of a Christian as somewhat of a paradox. It's this one verse I haven't covered yet, verse 20. Is Christ living in me or am I living? Seems like a paradox. When I look at your life, am I seeing you live or am I seeing Christ live? Which is it? Well, the answer is both because we have been so united to the Son of God, so united with Christ by His Spirit, so that when He died, I died. When He rose, I rose too. And that's what we symbolize in a baptism. And now that He lives, I live. And when God looks at me, what does He see? Does He see a filthy, dirty, wretched sinner? No. He sees the beauty, the glory, the righteousness, and the delight of his own son. And that's verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And isn't that what we see? even in our church family, as we look around amongst us, clearly living out the gospel where, as I look at your life, I'm saying, are you living or is it Christ? Well, it is both. I mean, there are quite a number of individuals in our church family who are so always willing to give of themselves in sacrificial commitment, in time-sacrificial ways, reliable, dependable, those who take annual leave to serve the Lord, to go on missions, to serve at holiday club, happy to do all the menial tasks. There are many of those in our church to do the tasks that no one will see, will never be applauded or recognized by men or women. There are some who approach me over the years who have said, John, you've got a lot on your plate. Let me do all your administrative work so that you can go on and focus on pastoring. When you look at people like that, what do you see? I see Christ in your life. In fact, yesterday I said to one, your life, that's the life of Christ, isn't it? It's so wonderful. You'll never be recognized, but rewards in heaven for you. Or we see individuals and families going through such struggles in life. Surgery after surgery, patiently waiting, months, years. Those dealing with chronic pain, dealing with health problems that will be lifelong. But yet you look at their lives and you see, how do you endure? How do you persevere? How do you move on in joy and in hope? That's the life of Christ in them. And then you see individuals who have such boldness and courage in evangelism. Folks with such generosity of water stuff in this world that they've been given by God. And you look, how can you be so generous? 
It's, a, it's over the top. It's the life of Christ in them. And so finally, where do you stand? Is it in Christ alone? If it's not, anything else is sinking sand. How do you walk? Is it straight walking? Ortho walking? Is it in line with the truth of the gospel? Because if it's not, then you're off track and you're lost. And how do you live? Is it by faith in the Son of God? Because if it's not, then you're not actually living yet. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the clarity of the gospel. As simply to the cross I cling with empty hands and nothing we bring. We praise you for the Lord Jesus who stood in our place that we might be justified and be right with you. Help us, Lord, to beat that into our minds and into our hearts each day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.